0: Hey, this is Web3Talks. The rule of this podcast is simple. We only talk with people who have hands-on Web3 building experience. So if you are a hacker, entrepreneur, or investor, you can get inspired by their stories, lessons, and fuck-ups. My name is Mac, and I'm hosting this pod. If you want to stay in touch, go to twitter.com slash web3talks, click the link in the pinned tweet and join our Discord community. Let's go. Hey, everyone. We had a pretty long break as I was snowed under tons of private tasks, but I'm slowly starting to see the finish line. And, uh, you know, finally we are back. And in the last episode, Seb from Zapper suggested that we are, like, it would be cool if we had a, early stage project here so i said okay like let's do this but the person that i'm having here is not a no name by any means because today's guest is bored also known as bored elon musk who is a twitter anon legend with over 1.7 million followers there And he has been sharing smart and funny business ideas for almost a decade, I guess. So it's like he was anon before it was mainstream. So in the last few years, I know that board uh, focuses a lot on Web three. He shares a lot of content, ideas, and so on. He also invests in some game Web three gaming companies because he has gaming experience, and all these things led us to board box, which is uh, his new project. And it's like, in my terms, it's like an NFT box, and you can open it. And if you open it, you can find different game assets there. And you can obviously use these game assets, and it's highly advised to play instead of trying to flip them on the OpenSea. And all these assets and games are... Very tightly curated by board and his team, so you can avoid some Ponzi's, which is pretty nice because there are so many of them in this world. But you know, there's a lot of to unfold here. But before we start, let's get with the basics. Why have you started board Elon Musk account nine years ago?
1: It was nine years ago, as of yesterday. Actually, it was my Twitter anniversary. And it wasn't my first parody account. So for anyone who is not familiar, a lot of people on Twitter have created sort of these fictional characters that are often based on real people or real life events. And as I was growing up, I loved writing. I liked comedy writing. It was something I did as a hobby. And Twitter was this really wonderful platform for just putting quick thoughts and humor out into the world. And the hardest part, I think, with with humor writing is just having some constraints, and, you know, having sort of a lines to color within, if you will. And so the idea of a parody account was always fun to me. I had created a few that never really took off. And then one day, somebody who I was following and admired quite a bit by the name of Elon Musk nine years ago, he put out an idea called the Hyperloop, which was you know, basically a high speed train that goes underground and replaces all modern train systems and, and modes of transportation. Fast forward to today, that never really came to be. There is no Hyperloop that is active in any city. But the act of him doing that, of putting out this 40-page white paper when he had some spare time while he was bored, was such a funny thing to me, because he's obviously a very busy person. And so that spurred in me the idea of, what else does he think about when he's in the shower or taking a walk or on the toilet? And so that basically inspired me to create the account of bored Elon Musk, like a fork of Elon and since then it was just this experiment of trying to like create funny ideas that somewhat are in his voice because he's you know a pretty funny individual as, as well but also crossing that with my own personal humor like the guy who's actually running the account and so it evolved from there and i didn't have a grand vision it was just an experiment that went way too far and got way too big
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah like I- i've seen even like elon commenting on your tweets and on your ideas so yeah you get pretty pretty far
1: yeah it was pretty cool for him to notice I did appreciate that
0: how you got into crypto what's your story here
1: the crypto story has two prongs to it so one is more of a functional aspect so I remember a decade ago trying to transfer money from a bank that I had in Canada to another bank account that I had in the United States And this was like the same bank, the same company, it's an international bank. But because it was a cross-border transfer, I had to pay $40 in order to make that complete. And I thought that was absolutely insane, right? Like, why am I transferring, why am I spending this money? (laughs) And why is it taking several days to transfer money to myself within the same bank? And so I was like, there's gotta be a better way. And that's really what pushed me to crypto, which was this idea of being able to move money very quickly, very low fees, and without needing permission from the bank, that sort of got me exploring, and and that's where I jumped into you know earlier stage projects, Bitcoin being one of them, and using sites like Mt. Gox, and it was a lot to learn. You know, I'm not a technical person, so for me it was definitely a lot to learn, but I really appreciated it. And so that was kind of the first element of getting into crypto, and the other was because of bored Elon, you know, I had built this large following, obviously with big distribution there are opportunities to make money, right? To have a business, to sell things, to partner with people. But part of the appeal of of this account is to remain pseudonymous, right? Like I don't actually have anything to hide in terms of my real life identity, but it's just fun. It's fun for Bordy to be this anonymous guy who nobody knows because that way everybody can just kind of project their own personality onto it. And so I don't want to ruin that. And so, you know, being able to conduct business And use kind of traditional payment rails is tough because you you open yourself up to being identified and so crypto provided another opportunity or really a, a brand new opportunity to do business right to partner with people to send and receive money to sell digital items in a way that did not require me to give up information about myself that wasn't really relevant to that business transaction So those were kind of the two things that really got me excited. And then more recently, because my background is in gaming and we can talk about that, I'm very excited about the possibilities of what blockchain can do for the gaming industry and how it might usher in the, the next wave of
0: game builders. We'll definitely talk about your gaming experience here. You know, it, it seems that crypto is like a perfect technology for the thing that you started years ago. I mean, like, you know, nine years ago, it was hard to be an a pseudonymous person earning money and running business. But now, like, you don't need to dox yourself, which is pretty beautiful. Yeah, maybe tornado cash <laughs> might be useful to... Not leave so many trails, but it's still better than a HSBC banking account or something like that. Okay, so like let's talk about your project because BoardBox is a pretty unusual project. Because it's, it's not a game. It's not a loot box like traditional loot box that you could have in different games. So what is it and what's the business model? I thought your
1: description was a good sort of simple introduction to it. In the sense that it is literally, you know, an NFT that comes packaged with game assets. But I I always like to use real world analogies. So, you know, imagine you've heard about a new video game system and you didn't know much about it. But somebody who was familiar with gaming, who was familiar with like, what are the best game makers, sent you a box and sent you games that you should try out. That's a little bit of what it is. It's very much not a loot box. And and for anybody who is not familiar with the idea of a loot box in gaming, it's basically, you know, you're playing the game, you're potentially spending money or time. The game gives you a box that has, you know, one of many thousands of potential items in it. And there's different rarities in that box. So it's a bit of a surprise. A lot of people are frustrated with the loot box mechanic because it's a bit of gambling. Sometimes you get something good, sometimes you don't. Ultimately, you're spending your money and time, and that's frustrating. We are not that, right? So we're selling a box that every customer gets game items from the same companies, and they are of similar rarity. And to really blow it out more, it's more than just a box, right? A box is kind of an introduction, but we see ourselves more as like a boutique and a club because once you get your board box, once you get the game items you join our club of gamers, right? We have a private discord and and many more private sort of elements that people will have access to. We continue to bring people game recommendations, we host events, we do tournaments. You know, if you're thinking about like the store, like the store idea, it is truly like a boutique store where we're curating games that we think are great or games that are coming soon that we think are really going to be fun and and making those recommendations. And so part of it is, you know, me leaning on my experience in the gaming industry to understand which games we think are going to be the most appealing. But also, you know, having a filter and trying to help people navigate what is a pretty tricky space because there are a lot of people right now who are building quote unquote blockchain games who may not have that much experience in designing games. And it's a very hard thing to do. I've designed two games myself. It's potentially an endless exercise to build a good game. It's very, very difficult. And there are there are literally thousands and thousands of games being built. So, like, how does somebody who doesn't have a lot of time, you know, figure out where they should invest their energy or their dollars or, or or whatever money they're using? And so that's where we step in. You know, we're trying to be a voice, a curator, an educator, and help introduce people to blockchain games they might not have heard of. So ultimately, your description is very accurate in that like the product itself is a box with other stuff in it, but we really you know, it's everything around the box that we think is more important.
0: Yeah, I think you kind of fill this gap in gaming industry, because if I want to find a normal game, you know, non-blockchain game, I can find reviews and all these very established websites and so on. But when it comes to blockchain gaming, it's very obscure and there's no this information symmetry between different people that want to play games. It feels like, you know, playing games in the 90s or even 80s where you needed to know the game to really mm-hmm. be able to play it. Like it wasn't that obvious that everyone plays Fortnite or, I don't know, Minecraft or whatever. So this kind of like secret gaming club makes perfect sense to me here. and. What's the business model for you? Do you just generate uh, money through drops or through some partnerships or any other way? The core business
1: model is really simple, which is that we work with game studios to acquire usually exclusive game assets for BoardBox, and we make a margin on on those game assets, right? So a game studio ordinarily could sell NFT, they, they could do a drop of NFTs and sell those directly to consumers. And you know that's kind of the end of that exchange. In our scenario, we're asking game studios to make a thousand items for us or partition a thousand items from a, like a planned drop. And they use that as user acquisition, right? So like we bring quality players and owners of game assets to game studios, and this is something they're looking for desperately. And in exchange, they provide us with game assets. There is, you know, an exchange of value or of of money between us and them, but ultimately there is a margin between what those assets cost Mm -hmm. and and what, you know, what we sell them for. And, you know, it's, it's really like a store, right? Like every store buys goods in volume for their store shelves and they pay less than you pay when you go buy it at the store. So that's really the core business. It's really simple to understand. And of course there's other things like secondary sales and and, and other elements, but Mm -hmm. that's really it. And so you know, somebody who is a potential buyer might might ask, like, well, why do, why should I pay you guys that margin? Like, you know, I can go buy them directly from the game studios mm-hmm. when they drop their stuff. And the, the answer is, yeah, you can. But, you know, we're packaging up several games at once. We're doing the work and the research to find stuff that you might not have heard of and then we're providing you with, you know, the membership to the club and lots of giveaways and other fun stuff along the way. So, we feel like it's mm-hmm. an even exchange or a fair exchange of value.
0: Yeah, makes sense. And, you know, I remember when we talked that you planned to protect this product from flippers and there are many NFT flippers, people who just buy NFTs to sell them fast and get some, I don't know, 10%, 20% from these transactions. And I'm wondering like how have you tried to protect the whole ecosystem because you also as you said it's not only about the box it's about the community so if you had flippers in the community the experience for other people wouldn't be that good so it's an important thing to cover yeah and i'm definitely
1: proud to say that less than five percent of our board box buyers have sold their box so our retention has been really strong which to me signals that we did a good job of you know filtering out the flippers but really it came down to two approaches one is we were very explicit in our you know messaging in terms of like being on podcasts or like all the the messaging on our site saying we don't want flippers if you are looking to invest in something and sell it this is not a product for you so we were just like very much just telling people who were into dgen flipping like we this is not for you and we don't want you and listen nothing against it i do it too right like i flip jpegs and 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 that's fun but this is not that product so we're really focused on you know attracting people who want to play games and own those assets and so like we just kept hammering that over and over so that helped a lot and then the other piece was in terms of our initial genesis drop we were very careful to recruit potential customers that we felt were a good fit so like a lot of time was spent by me and the team reaching out to people one on one explaining what board box was and encouraging them to buy a box and many of them were friends, they were acquaintances, they were people in the industry, and because we knew that they understood the fundamental principle of board box, we we knew that they wouldn't sell, they would hold, and they would set a good example for everybody else who comes in. And like ultimately as this project grows and more people learn about it and want to get in on it, the flippers will come, but it was important for us that, you know, as large of a percentage as possible of the initial sale or owners were people who genuinely just wanted to be like owners of the games they of they that they mm-hmm. played. And so I feel like we've accomplished that so far and setting that that culture early is important to make sure that we continue to recruit the right kind of customer.
0: It seems a very unusual attitude when it comes to nft drops <laughs> typically it's spray and pray you know just like get as many buyers to just like you know rock people and just you know escape
1: yeah <laughs> it's it's a it's a really bad way to make a lot of money short term but a really good way to make a lot of money long term because yeah you know if you abuse your community and you just extract as much value as you can in the first six months that's going to come out that's going to be visible and you've seen that play out in many projects already mm-hmm. so that's not what we're interested in we want to be long term you know a long term like player in in the blockchain gaming space and the vision you know is that two or three years from now activision and epic and ea and and game studios like that are coming to us saying hey we're going to build games like this now, too. And we want BoardBox to help us launch one of our games. Mm-hmm. And so that means we have to really like honor our strategy, which is going after the right kind of customer. But it does mean that we're sort of delaying the profit that we're making early on because we're, mm-hmm. we're not trying to kind of hype and pump and, you know, mm-hmm. get as many people to flip these things as possible. Yeah.
0: When I think about it right now, it, it reminds me of this, you know demo versions on on the CDs when you bought, you know, this gaming magazines and the 90s, they were this gateway to gaming world for me. And today you don't buy games in blockchain, you just buy NFTs instead of buying a game. So, yeah, it it gives me this impression when I think about it.
1: Yeah, exactly. Right. So like the, the standard video game purchase, you know, 30 years ago was like you go to the store, buy a cartridge, play the game that evolved to now you download a file onto your you know computer onto your console and you own this digital file and in a way that is an nft except for the fact that like that nft can be shut down and you know you don't really own it like you can't sell your download of Fortnite to somebody obviously that's a free game but like if you paid 60 dollars for elden ring and you beat it and you were done with it long time ago you could take your cartridge your cd and sell it to your friends But you can't do that anymore, right? With the download, Mm -hmm. that's just yours. And so the next evolution with, you know, NFTs being used for gaming is like that that sort of represents your entryway into a game. But the cool thing is is that a lot of games don't require you to own any sort of tokens. You can just play them, and if you choose to have some ownership in the game, you can do that. And I personally think that's the best approach. Like, take away any sort of barriers of entry, let people play a game that they Mm -hmm. think is fun, and then present
0: them with opportunities to have more skin in the game if if they choose to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, free-to-play is... (laughs) the leading model also in, you know, normal gaming. So I guess uh, here it might be also the good path. I remember when I talked with Steppen founder and all, although like Steppen is a pretty like when I talked with them, they convinced me at least like I believe that they will transition from this Ponzi like model to a more sustainable one. I don't see it happening. But, you know, back then they told me that they gave away NFTs for free, and they were, you know, just trying to make people use the app because their idea was that if you keep the expectations low, so you give it for them for free, and they play the game that's full of bugs, full of glitches, they wouldn't complain. But if they paid, I don't know, ten thousand dollars, they would be very furious because you know they pay ten thousand dollars, so they are bound to have some expectations. And I'm wondering, you know, as your box, as far as I remember, it's like, what, one if? That's correct, yep. Which is pretty expensive. I mean, like, it was more expensive, like, a few months ago. But, you know, (laughs) it's a bear market and people are like, you know, oh, yeah, it's a gas fee. Maybe I'll wait until it drops to $5 instead of 10 instead of, you know, aping into $200 gas fees and so on. So I'm wondering, like, how have you acquired users if you've done anything apart from the this you know one on one conversations that you mentioned because you launched at one of the hardest time because it was the time when shit hit the fan and you know there was luna then there was the celsius it was like the if I had to pick like the worst time for launching an <laughs> NFT project, I think you were, you just like nail it, <laughs> basically.
1: Yeah, yeah, Mac. Our project launched the day I believe that Terra like collapsed, so it was an interesting <laughs> day for sure. The thing is, you know, kind of going back to earlier in the in the conversation, we weren't really going after the DGens and the investors or anybody who was buying this as a means of like flipping it. The way I think about it is, the person who's willing to spend three thousand dollars on a PC and then goes on and spends five to five hundred to a thousand dollars per year on gaming, that's like a luxury mm-hmm. gamer, right? And that's that's mm-hmm. who I am. You know, I have an Xbox that costs six hundred dollars and a PS Five. These are not insignificant purchases. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we're starting at the top, and this is what a lot of companies do. Like even you know, using my um, my real world uh, <laughs> counterpart, Elon Musk. When they launched electric vehicles they started at the top end with a luxury vehicle Mm -hmm. and eventually they recruited more and more people and as the volume of interested customers went up they were able to lower the price and so we're doing the exact same strategy so like obviously like we want as many people to play games as possible and have access to what we're building as as possible Mm -hmm. and so over time we will drop our price but the initial drop of a thousand genesis boxes we always knew would be important and so we did set the bar very high and we did go after people who we felt would be comfortable spending that amount of money it does mean mm-hmm. that you know the sellout of board boxes will take longer but that's okay like we're not worried about sort of like typical metrics that nft degens think about which is like how fast did you sell all the nfts you know how many owners are there what is like the the secondary market those things will come but ultimately we're just selling a product as if you would sell in the real world like a rolex watch right and Rolex sells their watches when they sell their watches. They don't discount them. They don't go and put them in thrift shops or give them away. They sell them when the right person who wants a Rolex gets them. And so, mm-hmm. you know, it's not meant to be snooty. We're not trying to say like, oh, we're a luxury good or whatever. But at this point, we're trying to build something special. And in a way, the price point that we set up front was meant to sort of deter the d from wanting to buy mm-hmm. it. But I will say that for anybody, like if you were in our private discord and you asked the average, you know, board box holder, if they felt like it was a valuable investment or, you know, sort of worth the money they spent, I would say 99% would say yes. Because since the initial drop of the five game assets that were in the box, we've done like giveaways of other games almost on a weekly basis that were quite valuable and quite expensive to buy. And we've given those back to the community for free. So I would say that like worst case scenario, people can say they've like broken even if they're thinking about it in investor terms. But, you know, BoardBox is not an investment and this is not investment mm-hmm. advice. <laughs> we want people to hold their stuff. So mm-hmm. that's that's my answer to that. You know, it's a bear market right now. Sales are, are a little bit harder. And this is across the market. Like everybody who is trying to launch a new project today is struggling with the same issues. But luckily, we're, we're in a good position. We have capital to to run the business for A good amount of time without making any money, so we're just investing in the community and investing in our relationships Mm -hmm. with game studios, and uh, that will pay off when uh, the market corrects.
0: Yeah, and you know, I'm kind of thinking that you know you have this very hard task of curating the game assets that you are about to include. So it's like because it's blockchain space, it's it's very complicated, and some products you know might not be as good as advertised and Some products might not deliver and some products might, you know, just be a scam or whatever. So how do you protect, you know, board box holders from that? Like, what's your process of choosing the right games and assets?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's definitely important because in a way, like, I'm putting my reputation on the line and the company's putting our reputation on the line about making these recommendations. You know, you don't want to be like the guy that, you know, six months later you you recommended something and then it's like a rug pull or it ends up being a flop. So there's kind of two categories. I think one is a game designer or studio puts out an idea for a game and ultimately they're not able to fulfill that. And that's okay, right? Like I think for anybody who's used Kickstarter or other crowdfunding platforms to sponsor a project, the reality is like, you know, that you're rolling the dice a little bit and that the people might not be able to fulfill on what they promised. If that's done honestly and it's a failure that you know they that happened because they tried their hardest and it just didn't work, I think people are understanding. Now, if it's nefarious like where people really promise something that they had no intention of being able to deliver on or knowingly we're not capable of delivering on that's a different story and that's the thing that we really watch out for so first of all yeah i i lean on my my experience in the game design and game gaming industry to kind of weed these types of projects out and I've, i find that i'm pretty good at it because i've basically talked to thousands of game developers and i kind of have a sense for like who has the the ability to to bring something to market and who doesn't and that's a bit of a subjective and sort of like you know more art than science But ultimately, you know, our team, like before we make recommendations, we have meetings with game studios. We get to know the founders. Sometimes we get demos that are kind of, you know, not public. We really try to understand, like, is this something that we feel confident in recommending? And for the first box, I'd say we met with about 100 game studios before we ultimately settled on five. So we did our job of curating and and we'll continue to do that. But ultimately, it's not perfect. You know, we will at some point recommend a game that comes from BoardBox that maybe is less than... Desirable And uh, hopefully our track record is high enough where people will forgive that. But we try to do it as honestly as we can. And no game studios are coming to us and and offering us cash to recommend their game. It has Mm -hmm. to be one that we believe in before we partner with them.
0: As we are talking about crypto gaming, many people, and I guess audience of this podcast as well, might have this pretty shallow understanding of that, because when people think about crypto gaming, they think about X Infinity or Steppen, which were basically a pretty like <laughs> games slash Ponzi's. <laughs> and this earn component was pretty highlighted. So everyone was playing Axie or Steppen, not everyone, but like most people were playing to earn money. That's why the economy collapsed. So I'm wondering, you know, as you have seen so many games and so many models, what are the more sustainable game ideas that you have seen?
1: Yeah, I mean, I will say that the definition of a game is subjective. And different people think different things are games. Like, somebody who is an accountant might think that going through an Excel spreadsheet and cleaning it up is a game to them. And that's that's fine, right? Like, everybody will gravitate towards the games or whatever fun entertainment they they want. For me though, you know, a game is more fun and I think this will apply to blockchain games when the money is kind of wrapped around or outside of the core game itself. And I want to credit somebody, Brooks Brown, who who is running a wonderful project called Nor. He talks about this a lot and uses an, the analogy of sports which I really like. So when you think about football, whether it's, you know, football in in Europe or or American football, whatever the sport is, that game has rules, and the players play it, and there is an outcome, and there are fans. Now, outside of that, that sport, there is betting, right? Like you can bet on what you know, what team is going to win, or in fantasy sports, you can bet on you know which individual players are going to score, all these sorts of things. But those actions, the, those monetary sort of interactions that that you are experiencing if you participate in them, does not impact the core game itself. the The game is pure. And so I think that as people are thinking about blockchain games, if you are trying to monetize or add some sort of token to every little interaction within the game itself, inevitably you will have people come in who try to optimize the actions that get them the most money versus optimize the actions that make them win or make their competition fun. And so I think with a lot of the earlier games that were sort of, you know, quote unquote, you know, blockchain games or play to play to earn or whatever, you saw that, right? And so it's on the game developer to really think that through and make sure that they are building a game that is fun to play for free, that has the opportunity to, you know, have ownership and have tokenization in a way that does not destroy the experience for the game players who are there, who don't want to necessarily touch crypto. So that's the ideal. And that's certainly what we look for. It's not a perfect science and I think it's going to take a lot of experimentation over the next few years. But for us, you know, our goal with with Boardbox is to curate games that look like games you would see on the Steam Store or Epic Store or the PlayStation Network. Like they're just games, right? And so the only difference is that you can own items in those games, whether it's for status or some sort of like, you know, equity or or stake. But ultimately, like it shouldn't look very foreign. And if we do our job right we will just be a games company. We are not a blockchain games company. We're not there yet, but that's the goal.
0: Yeah, you know, I've seen a video from one of these games. It was this kind of like Fortnite-like, some shooting game, and someone used a board, hoverboard, I guess. And I was surprised because this game looked very advanced, just as you say, like from Steam. And the games that I've seen from uh, like before were pretty primitive. You know, they looked maybe not like Pong, but like you know, they were very basic. And the games that you included in the box looked like a game that I would play just to have fun, not just to make money.
1: Yeah, I I think that you know that's certainly something we're proud of. And I do think you can make a very fun game that doesn't have the most advanced graphics. You know, one example from last year, there was a game called Among Us that came out. There was just Mm -hmm. like these little two D sprites, and it had millions and millions of players. And it was super fun. So that's okay. I'm not somebody who's like a graphics maxi and like needs to have like 4k, you know, 60 frames per second. Like if a game is fun, it's fun. I I think Nintendo is a really good example of that. Like they don't have, they've never had the most powerful system or rarely have they ever had the most powerful system, but they make really fun games that are timeless that continue to attract people. But I do think what you saw in the early days of kind of blockchain gaming was more rudimentary styles of gameplay. And that's and that's changing where you are starting to see games that mirror what you see in kind of traditional gaming space. But ultimately, like it just takes time to play games. And so the people who went to market first were the ones who could pump out a game faster. And because they brought those games to market earlier, they obviously were not as polished as, as what mm-hmm. we might be used to. So I'm really bullish on 2023 and 2024 having games that truly look like the games that you're used to playing on a console or on a PC. I've seen the companies that are building already, and they will be ready to share those games in, in the coming year. It's just early right now. And the traditional games that already look good, that are not you know, blockchain-based, they're not necessarily ready yet to implement on-chain elements. So Mm -hmm. they can't make that port quickly. And because they can't, we're kind of waiting on the indie studios and the newer companies that are building blockchain games from the ground up.
0: So the difference in this uh, perfect game would be that, you know, let's say I play Diablo and uh, I have like super magic sword. And instead of this sword being owned by Blizzard in the end, it's owned by me, yes? So I have like an NFT of the sword, and I can sell it wherever I want. I can sell it on OpenSea, I can sell it on Blizzard Auction House or whatever. Is this how it's going to look like? Or is there any like bigger change between like the thing that we know and this blockchain gaming?
1: I would say, put simply, it might look like that. I, I think for me, at least the biggest change is that game objects or or 3D objects, whatever they might be, become their own Units, their own sort of individual property that players own, and that certain game studios create them and allow them to be used in their game. But then they also allow those items to be used by the player, bought and sold externally from the game. So, using your example, if Blizzard creates an awesome sword and then sells that object to the player, and then that player can kind of buy and sell outside of the game, that's great. But if Blizzard decides tomorrow, we don't want this sword to work in our game anymore, That's it, right? So the player lost the ability to use that really cool sword, which was cool because it was in the game Blizzard made. Now, the perfect situation that I see in the future is that other game studios will take that sword, implement it into their game, so it continues to accrue value, not monetarily, but value from a gaming perspective. And so you need those conditions to exist Because otherwise, like, yeah, if you can own a game item, but the game itself that runs the game servers can still ban your item or ban you from accessing that game, Mm -hmm. the only advantage you have at that point is that you're able to sell that asset to somebody else, which is fine. I guess that's kind of cool, but it's not really deep enough. So Mm -hmm. the best analogy I've kind of thought about recently is like a deck of cards, right? You have these 52 cards, two through ace. This was created. There are rules around what a two means and what a ten and what a jack and a king is. And from that, people have built all these different games. But the deck of cards, this idea of a deck of cards, nobody owns that. Nobody can shut that down. So in a way, that sword we were talking about is almost like the ace of clubs. Like you have Mm -hmm. that ace of clubs and you can play hundreds of games with that ace of clubs and it will always be yours. It's not a perfect analogy but it's kind of the best one I've been able to come up with mm-hmm. so far.
0: I've heard some people being skeptical about this idea because it might be hard to make this, you know, asset from one game usable in the other game, but when I think about it right now, it seems like a user acquisition strategy. So if I wanted to, you know, steal players from Blizzard, I would make all their assets usable in my game. So, through this vampire attack, I might, you know, encourage them to try my game because, you know, they won't start from scratch, they would already have, you know, some cool items there.
1: Totally. Yeah, I I mean, if I were the future Blizzard, I would absolutely encourage other game developers to build on top of the items that I've created as a way to draw people back to my game. The current system of video games definitely wants you, the player, to be spending as much time as possible in the title that they own because that maximizes you know, the transactions that you might make inside of that mm-hmm. game. I, I get it. But if the future model is that the creator of these objects monetizes through those objects being used more and sold and bought more, that changes a little bit of the monetization path where game studios are a bit more open. To their stuff being used in other places. And if you look at sort mm-hmm. of like the, the current st- slate of things, Fortnite is a really good example, right? Like they constantly are doing partnerships with other intellectual property. Like they bring in Marvel characters and Star Wars characters, the NBA, and they bring them into Fortnite to be players or skins in that game. But then all those other partners that are working with benefit because that's a big story for them and it attracts new customers or consumers or fans, to them. So it's like this perfect intersection. And that's done in the Web 2.0 mm-hmm. world very well. I think with blockchain gaming, that spirit is already built in from, from the start. And that will just be the the norm. Like Fortnite mm-hmm. is, to me, an exception. There are very few games that like to have sort of these like cross-IP you know, opportunities the way that Fortnite does. Like Smash Brothers is one example, Mortal Kombat is another, but most are, are very guarded and don't want their characters to appear in other games. Mm-hmm. So that is the opposite of, this, of the culture that you see in, in the Web3 gaming space, which is like, no, we want our stuff to be existing across every game, if possible.
0: Mm-hmm. I think like, you know, years ago, game developers made money because you bought a game. Now, many of them make money because you buy an item in a game or, or, you know, something, you know, pay to win model. But I think like it changes the business model because I don't care that someone still like steals, quote unquote, my users, my gamers, and they play the other game because if they use my items, they will buy and sell these NFTs and I can get, I don't know, like 2% from every sale. So instead of earning money from players directly, I can earn from all the NFT transactions. And it seems like a pretty interesting revenue stream.
1: It's a win-win because the reality is, is that game makers today do have to compete with all their other game studios. And so they're trying to steal their players with a game that is more fun, that's cool, whatever. And so if you acknowledge the fact that, hey, your game is going to eventually lose players and they're going to go elsewhere, it'd be better to be able to at least own a piece of the value that they are taking with them mm-hmm. versus just you know trying to like trick them into sticking with you. Because I think that's what's happening today is that like a lot of game companies, especially mobile games, they're using these psychological tricks to get you addicted so that you don't play other games. And that's like, you know, borderline evil, in my opinion. And instead, just focus on monetizing the cool stuff you've made. Continue to, you know, update your game and and create games that use that that stuff that you created. And encourage a marketplace and encourage liquidity. And then just, uh, you know, cash in on the transactions. Uh, the, to me, that's a much better business model. Mm-hmm. And it's a it's certainly a lot better for players. You know, versus the the current system we have, which is completely one-directional, which is payers buying digital items, all that money going to the studio, and the player does not really have anything to show for it other than like they get the right to use these digital items in a game unless they get booted off the system.
0: Mm-hmm. You've seen so many games as an investor and as a board box founder. So I'm wondering, what were the biggest mistakes in, in blockchain gaming that you have seen and the coolest things that these developers have done.
1: Yeah, I mean, biggest mistakes, I think, was over-indexing on the financialization and blockchain elements of the games in the first place when trying to onboard players. Like, imagine going to a game's website, and before you're able to do anything, it says connect your wallet. So if you're you're newer to blockchain, or you're a gamer who's kind of curious about it, and and you see that, you're, you're basically done, right? Like, you've never had that chance to even play that game, learn about it. Or if you are presented with a website that is focused on tokens and staking and uh, DeFi elements versus like information about why this game is, you know, interesting and fun to play, again, that's a misstep, right? So you saw a lot of that in the early days. I have seen a pretty big transition where gaming companies now who are building on chain are definitely focusing more on gameplay. On the flip side, what I've seen work really well is a lot of games that are being built that are like, you know, playable in browser where you load up the site and it literally just drops you into the game you can play you don't have to buy anything you don't have to learn about blockchain it's just like here's a cool game you can play it and then as you get kind of hooked on it it presents you with you know a marketplace or opportunities to like you know participate from a monetary standpoint that's a really smart approach and i think we're going to
0: continue to see more of that yeah it makes sense i played one game i don't remember the name but like one of these browser games and I got hooked. I spent like an hour playing that even though I don't play games too much. And then it was like, mm-hmm. yeah, you can buy some thing. And I was like, oh, with Polygon? I'm like, huh, oh, it's a blockchain game. I didn't even know.
1: But that's the beauty of it. Like, Games are a really good way to like teach people about technology. I remember when I was in College, you know, I played Counter Strike with my friends, and there were a lot of things I had to learn to do in order to play that game, like how to set up a server and, you know, build Mm -hmm. my own like desktop computer and like how to, you know, (laughs) even like how to use the internet. Like back in the day, like a lot of people learned to use the internet so they can play games with their friends. Mm -hmm. And so today, I think there are a lot of games that are really fun that are helping onboard people into crypto because, you know, they enjoy the game, they want to play with their friends. So they're like, cool, I'll. I'll try and learn how to use, you know, a web wallet or buy crypto. But if you present them that as the first task before they get into the game, it's too big of an obstacle mm-hmm. that people don't want to cross generally.
0: Yeah, like, you know, when I recall how many of my friends who are developers, some of them like really, really good developers, got onboarded to PCs through gaming, like I think like 90% or something. So, it seems like games are a perfect tool for onboarding new users to this new computer because like blockchain can be interpreted as a computer as well. So, makes sense. Okay, so I will ask you a few questions that I always ask as I know that we are getting to the end of our time for today. If I gave you a magic wand and you could fix one thing about web3, what would it be?
1: I think that security is the biggest issue. So right now we all hear about hacks, about phishing attempts. And so people are unfortunately losing a lot of money because there is almost an like, insurmountable amount of information to keep track of in order to like protect your, your digital assets. And so if I had to like wave my magic wand, I would say that I would put pressure on the wallets of the world, the MetaMasks of the world, to continue evolving their software applications, to make sure that they continue to warn users, provide recommendations, and do things on the back end that prevents these types of things from happening. Mm-hmm. Because the last thing you want to have to worry about is, you know, imagine in the real world that you spend thousand dollars on a gaming console and, and several games and a subscription, and then you know you wake up tomorrow and and your games are are gone and you don't even understand how it happened like that's a very expensive Mm -hmm. loss and it happens too much so i think that that's really stopping a lot of people from wanting to to enter this space Mm -hmm. and that's the biggest thing that needs to be improved all the other stuff i think will evolve and get better over time but security is a tough thing for the average like web user to understand and i think that they need more help there and the balance of course is to maintain decentralization so that's the mm-hmm. push and pull and people will decide how much centralization they want in exchange for them not having to worry about their own security and that's a personal decision mm-hmm. but i do think that some of the the larger wallets need to do a little bit more work and, they're, and they are doing that work to protect users who are who are a bit more new to the space
0: i agree like for i agree a lot and i remember when I've been hacked, not not in a blockchain, but like my Diablo 2 account got hacked and it was a terrible experience. I didn't want to play any games for many, many weeks. So if you have experience like that, it can be devastating on your user base. Yeah. And like, what were the most mind blowing Web3 projects that you have seen? Something that was you know, either amazing or so crazy that just made you wow, say, wow.
1: I think that the one that has impressed me quite a bit lately, and I'm biased because they were, you know, connected to us via BoardBox, is the Altered State Machine, ASM as they go by. They are building essentially AI brains that are designed to do things for you in the metaverse in games, right? So if you think about a classic video game, you have this idea of an NPC, a non-playable character. So like you're the player, you're running around a city and there's these like programmed, you know, scripts that make it feel alive where people talk to you and they kind of go through the motions. But ultimately these are all programs, right? There's a little bit of a lack of humanity. Mm -hmm. And so the vision for Altered State Machine is that you replace these kind of dumb NPCs with intelligence that actually like can make, you know, a digital environment feel more real where they have their own goals where they learn where they react mm. to you in a way that is more organic. And so you can think about this as like race cars that are drive that like learn over time and get harder to beat. It could be characters that are, you know, speaking to you and have dialogue. It could be, you know, athletic events where, you know, it's a soccer player mm. and they're like getting better and better over time based on how you play. So to me, that's a richer game experience that that they are promising. They have not released sort of any examples yet, but there is one coming soon called IFA A I F A Football, which is going to be sort of a demonstration of some of this technology that I'm I'm quite excited mm-hmm. about. So I would pay attention to them and and sort of the branches of that overall company and what they're doing.
0: Yeah, sounds really cool because like NPCs are the characters that I still remember after so many years. You know, whether from Baldur's Gate or Diablo mm-hmm. or mostly RPG games, fall out, and, you know, making them more memorable and even more intense can make you like, can give you such a beautiful experience. Like similar to having NPCs in this like real life RPG games where, you know, where you play with your friends in a basement and one of them is an NPC and tries to play out the role. So it seems more natural and unpredictable yeah absolutely
1: and i and i do think that over time it is going to extend the life of a game because Mm -hmm. you know especially if you think about like a one-player game once you've played it enough these npcs all start to kind of repeat and it feels boring yeah imagine a world that continues to evolve based on what you do in it and the game is different a year later than the way you played it before that's Mm -hmm. that's super exciting to me
0: yeah sounds super cool one I think the most important question is where people can learn more about BoardBox.
1: Certainly, uh, give me a follow board Elon Musk on Twitter. Our site is at BoardBox.io. We still have not uh, been able to uh, purchase the dot com someday, though. (laughs) And so that's really great. And then once people have purchased a board box and they can buy an opened one on OpenSea if they'd like or mint one directly from our site. Our private Discord is a great place to be. There's really great people. We share a lot of fun, you know, giveaways and events. So that's kind of our club, our hangout place. And uh, would love for anybody who's listening, who does, you know, acquire a box to to join us and and help make it an even more fun place.
0: Okay, perfect. So the last one, (laughs) like, do you have any ideas for a guest, someone who might make a good fit for the conversation that we had? Oh,
1: man. So... If you want to kind of continue the discussion around gaming, the gentleman I mentioned earlier, Brooks Brown, is is a fantastic interview. If you'd like to talk to someone who has a grander vision for society, if you can get his attention, I would recommend uh, Balaji Srinivasan, very yeah. interesting gentleman uh, as well. And uh, yeah, I'll keep thinking on that. And maybe send you some, some ideas uh, behind the
0: scenes. OK, perfect. Perfect. So thank you a lot. And you guys check out. I think it makes a lot of sense to type board box in YouTube because there's some guy doing an unboxing uh, video and showing <laughs> all these assets in, in, in games and so on. So I, I think it might be very useful to check it out.
1: Love that. Thank thank you for the conversation. Appreciate it.
0: Yeah, thanks a lot and have a good day.